right, go ahead, take your seats and open up your copy of God's Word to chapter 1 of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Well, as you're opening your Bibles, I just want you to think about the different groups that maybe you might be a part of in your life. Think of your family. Think of maybe the place where you go to school or where you work. Think of maybe your groups that are centered around a hobby or, or some common interest. As old as the earth is, as long as the sky has been blue, people have been gathered together in, in groups and in assemblies, some of them very important, some of them not so much. And yet I have the privilege this morning of introducing for us a new sermon series where over the next number of weeks we'll be looking together at what the Word of God has to teach us, listen, about the most significant group of people that the world has ever known, the church. And the goal, the goal for this series is for us to grow in our biblical understanding of the church. Matt read this morning from the first chapter of Proverbs, and one of the phrases in there, did you catch it, was, was that we would increase in learning, and that, that's the heart that we have in this sermon series. We want to increase in our learning and in our understanding of this assembly that God has called us into. We want to know more fully what this body of Christ is supposed to be like. What are we supposed to look like? What are the different purposes and responsibilities of the church? How are her members supposed to relate to one another? How is the church supposed to be organized? What are her ordinances? These and and many other who's and when's and why's are going to form the answers that will shape the topics of the upcoming messages in this series. But first, before we delve into these areas, we want to first establish this, that Jesus is the King of the church. And this may seem to be rather basic, but listen, it's not. It's not. That, that Jesus is the king of the church is not something that we just quickly affirm as obvious and then move on to more real life issues. No, Jesus being the king of the church carries profound implications that influence every area of our thinking about the church. In other words, I would say it like this, we cannot understand the church properly nor can we live rightly within the assembly if we don't keep the king and his kingdom front and center in our minds. Let me say that again. We cannot understand the church properly, nor can we live rightly within the assembly if we do not keep the king and his kingdom front and center in our minds. Often, when one is on a long journey, it's beneficial to to stop and pause and, and just kind of reflect on you know, where, where you are and, and where you've come from and, and where you're going. Maybe to get a, a lay of the land, so to speak. To, to be able to see things clearly and, and not miss any critical pieces of the big picture in spite of all the other necessary details along the way. And sometimes this happens with Christians. As the cares of this life are many, we fail to remain attentive to the bigger picture. That the triune God created this world and it was all very good. 
The first man, Adam, walked with God and was meant to represent God as a type of king to rule over all the earth. But everything was disrupted. Everything was ruined when when Satan rebelled against God, was cast down to earth, deceived Adam and Eve, who in their own rebellion failed in their role on earth and introduced sin into this world. From that day forth, there would be an extraordinary change. A change, we could say, of cosmic proportions. Where Satan, this usurper of God's authority, would be allowed by God to exercise governance and advancement of his own evil world system. Ever since that day, mankind was in need of rescue. A greater king, a perfect king, A second Adam needed to come to reverse the curse and extinguish the power of the evil one. To defeat the counterfeit kingdom and to set God's kingdom back in its rightful place. So at just the right time, God sent his son, the promised king, who before he would fully set up his kingdom would have to first save his people from the power of the evil one. And when he came, he didn't look like a king. He certainly wasn't treated like a king. And yet this king died for his subjects. And he died and he rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death. And even as he rose, he didn't at that time usher in the fullness of his kingdom immediately. But rather he ascended to heaven took his seat on the throne, and he promised that he would come again a second time. And that time he would come in glorious majesty, and as it says in the book of Revelation, he would set the kingdom of this world as his own kingdom, and it would be the kingdom of the Lord's, and he would reign forever and ever. Now, where are we going with all of this? as we begin a series this morning on the church. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul and his ministry companion Silas would arrive in Thessalonica and they would begin preaching the word, the good news about Jesus Christ. And the Jews would form a mob to resist them. And and these Jews, they would come to, to arrest Paul and Silas, but in, in not being able to find them, instead they found one of their converts, Jason. And so they dragged Jason before the authorities. And look on the screen behind me. This is what they said. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, he received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. We read these words of this angry Jewish mob in the first century, and we need to recognize that they spoke more truth than they realized. Satan is not the sovereign ruler of the world, much less is his emissary, Caesar. But there is, in fact, another king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is in process of turning the ship around breaking in on the entire course of human and cosmic history 
to replace an evil system with his perfect kingdom. Now watch this. What's going on as the mobs make their claims? What's happening here on this earth in the age between Jesus' first and second coming that causes these angry opponents to say that the message of Jesus as king is impacting the very fabric of human life on this earth? What is it? People are putting their faith and hope in Jesus Christ and the church is being established. The church, listen, is the inbreaking of God's kingdom on this earth. The church is the first fruits pointing forward to the greater reality that is to come. And so we say this, Jesus is the king of the church. Jesus, the redeemer, is king of the redeemed. And so we can say this, Jesus is the king of redemption. Jesus is the king of redemption. Some of you realize what I'm doing when I say that. There's a double meaning there, right? Jesus is, in general, the king who secures the freedom of his people and specifically, hear this loud and clear as we begin a series on the church, Jesus is the king of our church. Everything we're doing here, everything we believe about who we are, everything we're going to say about the church, we say this first, Jesus is the King. And this morning, I want to show us from God's Word three descriptions of Jesus' kingship that help us better understand His sovereign rule over the church. All right? Three descriptions of Jesus' kingship that help us better understand his sovereign rule over the church. And here's the first. Jesus is king of liberation. Jesus is a liberating king. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. God's word says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, in all of the world, there are only two kingdoms. Just two. One is ruled by Satan, and the other is ruled by Jesus. And each and every person on this earth belongs either to one kingdom or the other. God's word says that because of the sin of Adam, the entire human race is born into the domain of darkness. Flip back in your Bibles, maybe six, seven, eight pages to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, a common passage that we will refer to, but it's common because it's so critically important as we understand our lives and, and the kingdom's that are in place in this world. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says here, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body 
and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us, no exceptions, enter into and live a life under the rule of tyranny. And we ourselves willfully rebel against a holy and righteous God. The Bible says that in this condition, we are against all sound reason, listen, ensnared by the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. That's God's words, not mine. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26. If we're going to understand the church, listen, we have to understand a correct theology of Satan's rule over this world. So I'm going to put some verses on the screen behind me. First is this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Speaking of those who, who don't know Christ, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John in verse 19 says this, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is why when he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and tempted him, it was a real temptation when Satan said to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. Luke chapter 4, verse 6, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Satan is a liar, but this is true. God for a time has given authority of all the kingdoms of this world into the hands of the evil one. And Jesus himself acknowledges this in John chapter 14. As he's talking to his disciples for the last time before leaving this world. He says, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. This is Satan's domain. It's the domain of darkness and it's the domain from which we must be delivered. Now look again at Colossians chapter 1. In verses 13 and 14, did you notice the pronouns being used there? He has delivered us. He's transferred us. In Him, we have redemption. Who's He talking about? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the body of Christ. And if you, if you are truly a part of the church, listen, you've been rescued. You've been liberated from the bondage of sin. You've been forgiven. You've been transferred into Jesus' kingdom. He entered into the domain of darkness to come and get you. In His mercy, in an act of kingdom warfare, God invaded Satan's territory for the sake of the church. Hebrews chapter 2 says this in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15, And deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. Satan has been given authority for a time, but Jesus is the supreme ruler over the realm of the dead. And through his own death and resurrection, he defeated Satan and set his captives free. Praise be to God. Praise be to God that for those who belong to the church, true redemption has been accomplished. Sins have been paid for. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who belong to the church. Those in the church have experienced a transfer. See that that transfer, it's in the past tense. He has transferred us. This is something that's already happened. It doesn't say will be transferred, right? It says transferred already. And so even as the church awaits the final consummation of Jesus' eternal kingdom, Her members enjoy now a presence with Christ as citizens of His kingdom. And this is how we must view the world. We must see the world and the church through the lens of God's kingdom. We must see the church as the manifestation of Jesus' kingdom here and now. An assembly of, of liberated saints redeemed by the King Himself. And this in contrast to the citizens of the world who continue in the domain of darkness. So now here's the most important question that you could ever be asked in your whole life. Are you part of the church? Are you a part of the church? Are you in the kingdom? And I don't mean do you go to church I don't mean do you attend church. I mean are you in the church? Have you been transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son? Have your sins been forgiven? Or are you still trapped in the snare of the evil one? The means through which this liberation takes place is faith in Jesus Christ. It isn't, we don't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden we've, we've been transferred out of darkness into the kingdom with, without any sort of cognitive understanding and affirmation of the truths of God's word. Do you trust That He alone is the Savior that you need for the forgiveness of your sins. Do you acknowledge that you've been in bondage to sin? Do you believe that your sin needed dealing with at the cross? And now I want to take this one step further. Because there's a lot of people attending a lot of churches, hearing a lot of things about the church who haven't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, who haven't come under the authority of the King of the church. And maybe this is you this morning. And if it is, then you've not been delivered from the domain of darkness and 
and I need to tell you in love and in concern and care for your soul that you've not been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. See, it's one thing to to say you believe. It's one thing to claim to be a Christian. It's one thing to say that you're a part of, of the church, the kingdom of Christ. But it's another thing to lay down your life to follow the king of the church. See the difference? You see how faith and a complete change of mind, repentance, need to come together as one? Jesus said this in, in Mark 8, 34. We'll put this up as well. I want you to read along with me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that in his kingdom, he's the rightful ruler. And the evidence that, that you or I have been transferred into his kingdom As if in trusting Jesus, we've given up our innermost desire to be king of our own kingdom. We have to give up the notion of authority over our own lives. And we need to come under the authority of the king. The Bible calls us to lay down our lives, to follow him. And in so doing, this is how we pass from the realm of spiritual death to spiritual life. I say all of this now as we begin this series on the church because it would be a tragedy. It would be a tragedy for you to think that you're part of the church without realizing that what you first most desperately need is initial salvation. And so I call you this morning to examine yourself, each and every one of us. Examine yourself and ask if you've laid down your life and have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. If you've not done that, you could pray this morning, God, I I am ready to lay down my life. I'm ready to just abandon all of my own desires to rule my own life, to be the king over my own kingdom. I want to follow Christ because I believe that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus, would you make what you did at the cross count for me? Would you transfer me? Would you transfer me into your kingdom? You pray that prayer this morning and he is faithful to forgive your sins and to transfer you. Again, in the book of Acts, in chapter 26, the Apostle Paul is standing before the authorities and he's telling them what Jesus said to him when Jesus appeared and and sent him to proclaim salvation in his name. Listen to what Jesus said to Paul. He said, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. A place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the church. And this is what we desire for each and every one of, of us this morning, that each and every 
person would, would turn and find a place in the church where Christ is king. That no one would be left in the darkness. Now in the next six verses of this letter, Paul records one of the high points of teaching about Jesus in all of the Bible. It's a beautiful hymn elaborating on who this king is. And, you know, as we look at our Bibles, we see a a transition probably in your Bibles, like mine, a a white space in between with with a new heading. But but you you need to remember that these things weren't there in Paul's original letter. It just flowed as one. And, and so he leaves verses 13 and 14, ending off talking about Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. And here we see next that Jesus is King of creation. Jesus is King of creation. And what we just read in verse 15, make no mistake about it, this is what Paul is saying, this king, King Jesus, is God. The word image can have different meanings, but here it doesn't mean symbol, here's what it means, it means the exact likeness. In chapter 2 of this book, verse 9, it says, for in him the whole Fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the image of the invisible God. I I find it very helpful to think of it in these terms. In Jesus, the invisible God became visible. This is talking about the deity of Christ. And as we think about the deity of Christ, if if you're thinking, where are some... uh, really mountaintop verses in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, that I could turn to readily to see right there in, in full clarity the deity of Christ. And if you want to do that, just think of three chapter ones, okay? Three chapter ones. Chapter one in Colossians, chapter one in the Gospel of John, and chapter one in the book of Hebrews. And in the Gospel of John, it starts off in verse one saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then summarizing this section in in verse 18, John says this, No one has ever seen God. God is spirit. He can't be seen. But, But look, God, the only God who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 begins like this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Paul is is wanting us to know here with certainty that Jesus, the king who came to rescue his people, is himself fully God. He's the image of the invisible God and he's the firstborn of all creation. Maybe another tricky word there could mean some different things. So what does it mean here? Some some have misconstrued misconstrued this word to, to make it mean that Jesus was somehow at one point not in existence and then came into being. That's not what this means. That simply cannot be true. 
when we look at Scripture, this is not what the Word of God teaches. When the Word of God says that Jesus is the firstborn, it's talking figuratively about the one who holds a special representation over a household. More often than not in Scripture, this is what firstborn means. See, in the, in the Jewish culture and in the ancient Greek culture, the firstborn son, chronologically, carried the rights and privileges to be an heir of the household. And this came to be used metaphorically, figuratively, as the one who held the rights and privileges, whether or not they were born first. It's used of King David in the Old Testament. He was not the first king, but he was the firstborn king of Israel. Jesus is the firstborn over all the world. He's prominent. He is the one who exercises sovereign rule. The point is this, Jesus is preeminent over all things. He's king over all creation. Everything that we can see and everything that we can't see, Jesus is king of it all. Why? Because he made it all. He made it all. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Whatever dimension of creation you want to talk about, Jesus made it. And it was made for Jesus. Again, John says he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Think about the grandeur of the universe. Think about as you look out into the, the night sky. Think about as you look across the landscape of the world, all the beautiful things you've ever seen, all the intricate details and the littlest things you've ever seen. All of it made by Jesus. Everything in the spiritual realm created by Him. It's all His power, it's all His creativity, and it's all for His glory and His rule. He is the author of all of creation, and so He has authority over all of creation. As we read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see this to be the case as He claims all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Him. As the crowds declare that He teaches as one who has authority. We see Him exercising His authority over sickness and disease, over the wind and the sea. Jesus exercises His authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins. Jesus delegates His authority to His disciples And he rules with authority over the spiritual kingdom of darkness. When Paul lists here in Colossians the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, the surrounding context, what we've already seen in the domain of darkness and what we see later on in in the book is the rulers and authorities are put to shame in him. It's extremely unlikely that what Paul's talking about here in verse 16, is not Satan and his evil empire. All right, double negative there. Maybe I'll say it like this. It is extreme like, 
extremely likely that what he is talking about here, okay, when he talks about the things that are visible, sorry, invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he's talking about Satan and his evil empire. All of it is created by him and under his authority. I like how one preacher said it, the devil is God's devil. Satan and Jesus are not two co-equaling, equally dueling kings who, you know, one one is on the side of good, the other is on the side of evil, and they just battle it out as, as equal opponents. No, Satan and his wicked army are created by Jesus, and Jesus rules above them, and they ultimately serve his purposes. We also see in verse 17 that as king of creation, Jesus who ranks above and originates all things is also the one who sustains all things. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This man who lived a humble life, who died at the hands of sinful men is the one who has everything under control. We looked at the first part of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. I want to put the whole verse up now. Look at this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Taking Time to dwell like this on Jesus as king of creation needs to influence the way that we look at everything. And by way of application in this series in particular, it needs to change the way we look at the church. It needs to influence the way we look at the assembly of God's people here on earth. The only sovereign ruler of the church whether it's the church worldwide or Redemption Church in Durham, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. No one else rules as Lord. He's the one who created the church. The church is Jesus' idea, and He alone gets to define what it looks like and how it operates and what her priorities are. And no one gets to change these things. He alone gets the glory in the church. It's been made for Him, and no one else gets the glory. He alone secures the church from the spiritual powers of darkness at work against His kingdom. No one else could ever possibly control these things. And since He is the King of creation, we can trust that He could enter into His creation and have the power to accomplish the victory of liberation for the church. Jesus being the King of liberation and the King of creation, because of who He is, like a solid rock beneath our feet, we can have a sure and certain hope that He is yet able to do what he said he would do and finish 
what he started. This leads to our final point this morning. Jesus is the king of restoration. Jesus is the king of restoration. Look at verse, verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen, although created by him, through him, and for him, all things don't yet exist in relation to the king as they ought. Every area of creation, every area of creation that's been created, whether on heaven or on, on earth or in the heavens or in the spiritual realm, is tainted because of sin. And so every area must be restored. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the hinge upon which the whole world turns. One writer said it like this, The cross truly is the pivotal point in human and cosmic history. This is where the victory was accomplished. But now we wait. We wait for final victory. We wait for the final consummation and restoration of all things. And all of creation is waiting with us. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I want you to, just to see this because it really helps um, us understand Paul's words here in Colossians. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19. Paul here uh, differentiates the creation as uh, the physical world and, and the, the spiritual realm. He's not talking about people here in these first few words he says for the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of who the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Listen, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So as we're waiting for our final state in the kingdom of Christ, the creation around us waits as well for all things to be set right in Christ. This is not to say, by the way, that every person or everything will be saved in a salvation sense. This would also be contrary to what the Bible teaches. And so when, 
when we read that all things will be reconciled, we need to think of reconciliation in these terms. Reconciliation must be defined as all things being put into proper relation to Christ. Those who respond to his voice will be brought into a relationship of grace and blessing. Those who oppose and reject him will receive eternal punishment involving removal from God's blessings and the active outpouring of his judgment. In the end, everything and everyone will be reconciled in this sense. Everyone and everything will be subordinated to Christ. And this is why it's so important to make sure you're thinking about the king and his kingdom today and making sure that you are delivered from the domain of darkness. We don't know when the king is going to return and and establish his kingdom and make all things right. We know He will return in glory. He he will reconcile to Himself all things. He will establish His everlasting kingdom. He will bring peace and order and harmony to everything that is distorted by chaos. My son Luke, three years old, he's fascinated right now with swords. He just loves swords. He always wants to play swords. He wants to get swords at Dollarama. He, he just wants, he, every time we open the, the, his little Bible with the pictures in it, he, he, and it's his turn to pick the story, he goes right to the night that Jesus was arrested. Why? Because he wants to see the Roman soldiers because they have swords hanging by their side and some of them were holding them up. And he says to me the other day, he says, Dad, does Jesus have a sword? I said, you bet he does. And he says, to me, he says well, why didn't he stop Judas? And I said, because, son, he planned that. He planned to be betrayed by Judas. He could have stopped the Roman soldiers. Evidently, he missed that part of the story when he was looking at the pictures. He could have stopped them. But he's waging spiritual warfare in a different way. He goes to the cross first as a humble savior, as a king, giving up his life to ransom his people. And he will come again, I told him. I said, he's coming again, and that time he will wield the sword. And he will defeat all of his enemies once and for all, and he will establish the fullness of his kingdom. And as we think about this, and as we, we really meditate on the final restoration of the kingdom of Christ that is to come in the future, we think of here and now, and we think of the church. And we must realize that this is the place where God's peace is on display. Isn't it fascinating, listen, isn't it fascinating that in this hymn that shines the spotlight so brightly on the incomparable person and work of Jesus, that over and over again is stressing the encompassing of all things, all things, all things, all things. Isn't it fascinating that in all things in creation that God's word could get specific about at this point in a passage like this, 
that he would focus in on and set apart the church. Listen, when Paul thinks about the restoration of all things, he thinks about the church. He is the head of the body. Verse 18. The church. Every single part of creation affected by sin will be restored and the starting point of all of this is the church of Jesus Christ. A new creation made up of new creations an assembly of people here on earth bonded together in union with Jesus, secured by the new covenant made in His blood. When we think about the church, we need to think of the embassy of God's kingdom in a world that is otherwise under the domain of darkness. Jesus, the head. The church, His body his ambassadors, his representatives, those who serve under the authority and submission of her king in the first fruits of his kingdom. Jesus, we see in this passage, the first to die and then live again forevermore. The church, raised from death to life spiritually reconciled, looking forward with hope to the fullness of reconciliation. So let me ask you this morning, when you think about the church, are you thinking about the king and his kingdom? Do you think little of the church or do you think much of the church? And when you think of the church, do you think of the king of the church? May God... Forgive us for thinking less about the king and his church. Although Jesus is Lord over all, we do not yet see his rule being manifest over all of creation. But here's what we do see. Christ ruling the church with the purpose of bringing all things ultimately within the scope of that rule. When we come together, brothers, sisters, when we come together, if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, and if you've been born again to a living hope, when we come together, we are the already of the not yet kingdom. So we should look like it. Redeemed and transformed. We should look like what one writer said when he described the church. He says the church is the locus of God's glory. The theater in which he displays his grace and love. We should see in this place and the world should see when they look at his body the superiority of her king. It should be clearly manifest among us whom our king is and whom we worship and whom we look to as the head 
of our church. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So as we praise him, we we also pray for our church, what Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, that we too would be filled with all the fullness of God. And as we continue on into this sermon series, seeking to grow in our understanding of the church, let us grow in regard for our sovereign ruler as preeminent above all things, and let us hail him. Let us hail him as the matchless king, as we will for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we are in awe of what you have done for us this morning. And Lord, I pray for for us collectively as the church and those who are, are among our gathering this morning as those who are visiting and observing the church. God, would you magnify Christ Jesus in every heart. God, would would you allow us to see the king on his throne, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And would you, O Lord, ignite in our hearts a passion to serve him, to live for him, to praise him, our matchless king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.